Hello, listeners. Welcome to the Finding Fertile Ground podcast, where I discover stories of grit, resilience, and finding your fertile ground. I'm your host, Marie Gettle-Gilmartin, and this podcast is brought to you by Fertile Ground Communications. Do you struggle to put words to the screen? Is writing the very last thing you want to do in your day? My mission is to make communications painless for my clients. I can turn a piece of lackluster, jargon-filled, or technical prose into clear dynamic narrative. I help my clients discover how to tell their stories or solve their communications challenges. Look us up on FertileGroundCommunications.com. I'd love to give you a free 30-minute consult. Each week, I alternate this Finding Fertile Ground podcast with my other podcast, Companies That Care, which is about business leaders making a difference in the world. On both of my podcasts, I strive to highlight voices from historically excluded populations, the people who don't always get a platform. Check out my website for more details. This week, I interview Mike Ganino, a storytelling and communication expert, podcaster, and public speaking coach. He's also husband to Phil and dad to Viviana, who was born at 29 weeks gestation in Mexico during the first stages of the COVID-19 pandemic. Mike is full of fun, positive energy and an endless amount of interesting stories. Let's meet him. Hey, Mike, welcome to the Fighting for Ground podcast. It's so great to have you here. Thanks for welcoming me. We met on a business Facebook group and then you had a preemie and I had a preemie and I just have been following you ever since. Yeah, we've uh, we've had all these interesting connection points here for sure. We do. Yeah. So I always start at the beginning with my podcast. I like to hear about people's childhood. So can you tell us about your childhood, where you grew up and what your childhood and family experiences were like? That is a loaded question. You start <laughs> off with just the like, I do. let's just I, go deep. Right I do. Here. I love to get into it because I, I really feel like who we are as people is so much about you know what our childhoods were like. Absolutely. You know, it's funny, I in the work I do of helping people, you know, on the surface, it's helping people with public speaking and and really it's helping them like explore and get comfortable with how to express themselves. And that's often rooted in some way they traded their authenticity for attachment as a child. And so like, how is that bastardized into this adult version of them that feels so trapped? So I totally get how those roots they run deep. For me, I grew up, my mom and dad were were teen parents, and we grew up <laughs> kind of together in some ways. My mom was was so young that in, in some ways she was my mom, in some ways she was my, my sister, and we kind of grew up together for the most part. But here in Southern California... Uh, living living in San Diego County and then eventually moved around quite a bit and ended up living with my grandparents for a little while in high school. I became diabetic when I was nine years old. So that taught me a whole lot about, you know, right now a lot of people are talking about self-care. And for me, I was like, oh, I had to learn that at nine years old because if I didn't do self-care, I was going to have a seizure on the park. Oh my bench. gosh. And so uh, so that definitely shaped the way I, I approach the world and and my place in it. And I think Probably if there was like some like common theme to all of it all along was I always kind of believe that like if you had the pen, like literally or even just like figuratively, if you still had the pen in your hand, then the story wasn't over and you were still writing. And so I don't know, I, I believe from a really young age that none of it was predestined. I didn't know that being the child of a teen parent had some like statistics of how that was supposed to turn out. I didn't know being, you know, growing up really poor had statistics of how I was supposed to turn out and on and on and on. And so I think that that 
experience uh, shaped me in lots of positive ways as, as well as probably the negative ones that come along. When you were diagnosed with diabetes, what was that experience like? Did you have a seizure or how did you find out? No. So for most people, when they're diagnosed as type one diabetic, it's that their blood sugar is going to be really high because they haven't been getting insulin that they need. Their, their pancreas you know, shut down at whatever point and they're not getting insulin. So their blood sugar is going to go high which causes like lethargy, it causes weight loss, rapid weight loss, it causes frequent urination, extreme thirst. But the seizures are typically on the other side from low blood sugar, where Mm -hmm. your brain isn't getting enough glucose to function properly. So mine was really similar. We were moving from Southern California, from San Diego, I mean, still Southern California, but the other side of the state over to uh, near Arizona. So my parents got divorced and my mom and my sister and I were moving from from San Diego to over near like Havasu City for the folks that know the area. That's like a six hour drive through the desert. And so all along, like I was like peeing all the time and just like dehydrated, so thirsty. I started peeing the bed again, which I hadn't done since I was like a baby. So they thought like maybe I had like a urinary tract infection or something like that. My sister, who was three years younger than me, had like little lumps in her throat, like little swollen glands. So they thought like, oh, she's got like some kind of childhood cancer Mm -hmm. and Mike's fine. Well, she was fine. She just was like, you know, having stress and that was her body's way of dealing with it. She had like a little something going on. And then they're like, oh, and by the way, like she's going to be fine. He's diabetic and you need to go to the hospital immediately. This was like our small town doctor. We had gone back over to San Diego to get more stuff or something. So we were, we were there. And uh, that's how they told us. And it was like, I don't even know if my mom really knew what diabetes was. And this was, you know, type one diabetes. And so I don't think we knew at the time what to expect or what Mm -hmm. it meant. Yeah. And how it would affect you the rest of your life, probably, huh? Yeah. I mean, you know, we drove from the little town we lived in in San Diego down to the other town where the bigger hospital was. They checked us in and everything. And I was there for like a week or so. And I just, you know, I always was like a really good studious kid. I always wanted to like make everyone happy and and I try to be pretty likable. And so in the hospital, it was just like, all right, what do I need to learn? And what am I gathering here? What's mm-hmm. the information I need to know here? And I think even then didn't really realize like, what is this going to be like for the rest of my life? Oh, yeah. So when you were poor, did you kind of know you were poor or not really? Everyone was. We didn't live in like a fancy Mm, town. So like it was the idea of like, well, some people are really rich and they have houses on a hill and the beach. And then some people are not. And so that was my understanding of it. It was really after my parents got divorced that we were like really, really, really in bad straits. Mm -hmm. And so that's where the poverty level kind of struck. And at that point, I became really aware that was like, you know, from nine to 14 when we moved in with my grandparents those years were pretty lean years Mm -hmm. and so yeah we were aware we were you know we had the food stamps back when food stamps were actual like pieces of paper (laughs) and so when you go to check out it wasn't like you had a little card it was like you had this physical like monopoly money colored paper that you were giving at the counter so there was all the shame around that and having to borrow and ask for money from family members so i became pretty aware of it then the two things that i've noticed in the last three or four years to kind of destigmatize those types of things is that our library took away late fees, you know, which is amazing. I never really even thought about it until they made that announcement. And then the other thing that our Portland public schools did this year, I'm from Portland, Oregon, is that they're giving everyone lunch. Everyone can have that's great. Isn't that amazing? Yay for for Portland public schools. Because I think that that is really shaming when you're set apart from everybody else. Yeah. So visibly hard. 
Yeah. Having a different line to go in, having the different colored sheets of paper to use, like all of those things. Yeah. Some schools are doing some good things to destigmatize those types of things. And this next big question is, are you willing to share your coming out story? Yeah, I've actually, I think I've shared it many times over the years. I'm sure you have, yes. Socially and (laughs) in posts and blogs and things. I was in college, so it was the end of my freshman year. And I think probably like most most little gay dudes I knew from a young age, I think really early on, I didn't know that's what it was. I just was like different. And I liked hanging out with, for me, I was, I always had all of the friends, all my friends were girls. I, I was... I was really into performing all the time. So for me, it was always putting on shows, doing singing and dancing. And that was just always me and a bunch of a bunch of girls that were hanging out early high school, late middle school. I, I realized like, oh, this might be what it is. But at the time, I mean, this is the early 90s. I remember feeling all the time of like, oh, that's such a bad thing to be. So I can't be that because I'm not bad. Like mm. that must not be true because you know, my example of what was going to happen was like, you're either going to be an old, frail uncle who's living in Palm Springs and <laughs> has health issue at the time. I mean, AIDS was was such a prevalent topic oh, right. um, and such a scary thing. It's such a negative thing. Or you were like a child molester or something. And so in my mind, it was like, well, I'm not either. That can't be my fate. That's not who I am. So this must be something else. And so that kind of was always haunting me all that time. And at the end of my freshman year of college, I was just like, you know, let's figure, let's see what happens. I was an RA in my second year of my freshman year, which is really strange, a resident advisor. It was like the leader of one of the floors of the school in the dorms, which was rare for freshmen to be, but there's a whole story behind that. But so I was doing that and we were interviewing people for the next year. You know, we were doing like group interviews to pick new RAs for the upcoming year. And so I was on like the interviewing panel and there was this guy who was just kind of persistent about like, Hey, like I want to get to know you. And I was like, uh, nope. I have a girlfriend. Like I'm, I don't know what you think, but like, no, but then secretly I was like, but like, yeah. Like, this is, okay, is this safe? Can we do this? So we just kind of became friends a little, not really friends. We like ran into each other a couple times here and there. And then the woman at the time who was my girlfriend, she had like a school formal, like her association had like a formal party thing. And so obviously I was there and she was my date. And then another friend of ours, she brought this dude as her date. Ah. And so then there, like, you know, this probably makes me sound horrible in some way, but that night I was like, you know what, let's figure this out. And so I ended up leaving with the guy and was like, all right, yep, this all worked. I liked that. <laughs> and so that became my first boyfriend. I broke up with the girl, which was a whole big drama because we were kind of like the college sweethearts, you know, this attractive, oh. busy, well-known couple. So there was a whole bunch of drama there. And I ended up dating this guy for a while. He was my my first boyfriend. And there was a whole bunch of drama there, of course, too. Maybe I'm the drama. Maybe that's <laughs> the story. But yeah. And so after that, I ended up, you know, like the next day I told my friends, I was like, hey, So yeah, this happened. So yep, this is what I'm doing now. And at some point, I don't remember when I called my mom. She was the first one I told. And I think I said it in some like horribly, I think I said something of like, hey, like Gretchen and I broke up. Sorry, I just said her name. So um, (laughs) 
Anyway, you won't know who she is. She has, right. there's lots of them in the world. Right. So, and she knows who she is. So if she's, she's not listening. She doesn't speak to me anymore since then. So <laughs> right. I don't blame doesn't her. Matter. But so she said, you know, I said, oh, I broke up with her. And she's like, oh no, what happened? I was like, she had the wrong attachment. So my mom was like, <laughs> what? And it was like, what a weird way to say it. But I just couldn't say the words like, I love it. <laughs> I'm gay at the time. So I eventually did in that call. And then other family members found out and on and on and on and on. How did your mom react? I think she was like surprised. I don't, I don't know. She was fine. She wasn't like, I hate you. I disown you. I think she was just like, okay. Cause like, you know, I had had all those years of coming to terms with it myself. And this is the first time it was being put on her plate to deal with. So she was fine and supportive and loving. Then I think she asked if she could tell my grandparents or somehow my grandparents found out who were the ones that I had been living with throughout high school. And my grandma sent me like a box of like a care package, like chicken soup. Oh my gosh. Um, that's so cute. And that, uh, but it wasn't like, oh, take care of you. It was like, it wasn't something's like wrong a celebrate. Oh, I see. It wasn't no, like a congratulations care package. No, it, was like, oh. it was very much that line back then of, we support you and we love you. We don't support that. And uh, so like, you're welcome here anytime. This is your home. But like your friend is not. Oh, uh, love and the sinner, the, hate the sin sort of yeah, thing. And so yeah. And so I was just like, well, you know, I was really, I got really rebellious then. and was like, well, fine. I'm never coming back. Mm-hmm. So eventually that changed. And my grandma now would be like marching in a, a pride parade if she could. <laughs> so. Oh, that's cool. I'm glad she came around. I see a lot of hope in the younger generation now. I feel like, you know, the queer lifestyle is so much more normalized than what I see in my children. Yeah. I don't know if you've you've observed that or not, but I'm sure you will as as your child gets older. It's so often such an interesting thing of like, because it's natural for us to develop identities for other people, you know, Mm -hmm. and our view of them and who they are and what the world is like for them. And so, but that's not always accurate. And so when we're presented with that, it's an opportunity to change and grow, but it's still being presented with new information, you know? I mean, I think it's always going to be a shock for someone. Well, not always. I mean, often if they have any kind of gaydar. I've had a few friends whose children have come out to them as trans. And a couple of them have leveled with me and have said, I don't like the way I reacted. It came as a shock to them and they didn't quite know. I think that that is kind of the new the new tough coming out for parents in a way, because it's everything that they imagine their child to be is changed. So, yeah. And I think the, the worry, right? The like, ooh, yes, like right. the fear of the rest of the world. And yeah, it's hard because in that totally. moment, sometimes what the kid needs most is to not feel that fear in their own home. Yes, exactly. I interviewed a person in the UK. They actually have a guide for people when they come, you know, to help families when they have somebody come out as trans because trans are non-binary because we need to be prepared for something like, especially as parents, we need to be prepared for something like that. So we do react in a loving way, you know, and completely unconditionally loving. Yeah. So probably the way that I've raised my children. I mean, they're just around a lot of queer people, so it's completely normal, but I would like to think that, you know, the younger generation, the needle is tipping a little bit more, you know, it's, it's interesting. I had this conversation. I've had this conversation with a lot of people because I saw someone, a, a gay man once say, like someone, you know, my age or older say, ah, kids today, you know, it's just so different. It's so much easier. They don't have to come out. And and I think the challenge to that is that even if societally we get to a place where 
Uh, everyone is super supportive, even if in your own home. I, I shared this coming out story mine one time in social, and somebody said like, "Ah, oh, if you were my son, like you know, if my son came to me and told me this, I would just be like, well, you know, where's your person? Bring him in for a sandwich." And I was like, "Yeah, this isn't about that so much because like even if you're the most loving, warm home, we still live in a world where like your own parents who brought you in likely were a heterosexual couple, mm-hmm. so you automatically are different than the people in your family." You automatically, even if they're the most loving, supportive family, we live in a society where a lot of what you'll see in media is not even negative depictions of gay people, but just so much, so many straight people that even if everyone was super supportive, we're still steeped in a world where every book that we read academically until that changes a lot. So I think we've got a long way to go, but it definitely is. There's more and more support for sure. Yes. And I think that, you know, living in a liberal city makes a difference too. I mean, I, like I looked at my high schoolers sex ed uh, book, you know, a few years ago, and I was really pleased with what I saw, but he's in a liberal bubble as well. So, so. Well, I, and that's part of like, when we've thought about, you know, where, cause we live in Los Angeles and we've talked about like my husband recently, he like kind of did early retirement in a oh, way really? until How he exciting. does his next fun project. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And so we're like, you know, I teach my public speaking and my work from anywhere. I can, mm-hmm. I can run my, my business from anywhere. So we've talked about like, Oh, you know, if we don't have to live in LA, where would we go? And it's really interesting that the idea of not only looking at States where, the state legislation is more inclusive, mm-hmm. but also places where my daughter might not be the only kid in school with gay parents is important yeah, to us. Right. So, and that's a really hard data to find, by the way, is like, where are the cities with the most gay parents <laughs> of children? That's a really hard data to find. But, is it? Really? But, oh. Yeah, yeah. It's 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 like mostly been like random blogs and things. Uh. Um so really, when you look at those two things, the state legislation and then like where might there be a higher proportion of LGBTQ parents so that she's not the only one with two dads, it really limits the places where we can kind of safely yeah. live. Well, I, you might want to look into Portland because there are a lot here. Yeah. You know where we love is Salem. We would love to live in Salem. No, don't go to Salem. Why? You don't love Salem. <laughs> Salem is, is not going to be happy when they hear this. I know. What I understand and what I've learned in the last few years, it's really racist. Oh, yeah. Okay. That could be. I don't know how queer friendly it is, but it's yeah. it's really racist. And actually, I interviewed a woman on my podcast, Amira Stanley, who's, whose husband's trans and she's black, he's white, and it's really been a very difficult place for them to live. So my eyes have been open as a white Interesting. person about how yeah. racist it is. And, and I think that it's also gotten way worse, obviously, in the last few years. Sure. And it's also being the capital. There are a lot of, I think it's called Timber Unity. All these like former forestry people or loggers come out to protest at the capital. And it's like anti-masking, you know, all that kind of stuff is gotten Interesting. really bad. So that's why I would say I would not yeah. think They Salem. rank <laughs> highest in the HRCs. They rank really? highest in Oregon in HRC for Salem? the most LGBTQ friendly oh policies and inclusivity. Yeah. That, yeah Higher than Portland. I wonder if it's because of the state of Oregon. It's probably because it's a capital, maybe state employees, maybe. Could be. Yeah, it could be. Yeah. The HRC one is the one I typically look at. But again, it's looking at one view, not also right. looking at all yes. inclusivity measures, yes. but just that one view. And a lot of it looks at like amount of companies with insurance, wow. uh, health insurance, things that looks at things like that. 
Yeah, is that I'm interesting? But number really one, surprised. higher than Portland. I'm really surprised by that. Yeah. And, <laughs> and that's why I would just wonder about how much of that involves the state. Yeah. You know, because of being the state capital. I don't know. Could be, yeah. Our current governor is bisexual. And, you know, so I think that we have pretty liberal state policies too. So, yeah, yeah, it could be. Yeah. But I think that, I mean, just in, in Portland, I just, yeah, I just know a ton of LGBTQ parents. So that's how my kids were raised. We actually had my oldest son, the preemie, in a preschool, it was a co op preschool that had a diversity curriculum. So I love it. Anti-bias is called, sorry, anti-bias curriculum. And there were and there were a number of, of gay parents there as well. So yeah, you should check it out. I love it. So let's talk about your journey with Viviana. You're the first gay dad with a preview I've spoken to, I think. I know a lot a number of gay moms who have previews, but not gay dads. So okay, tell us your there story. We well, it was wild. When we're looking at having a baby, growing the family beyond my husband and I and a couple of dogs. You know, we were for a while went through looking at adoption, looking at all the different choices out there and ended up with with surrogacy. And so we did international surrogacy. It was significantly cheaper to do it. And so we did international surrogacy. So Phil is Viviana's biological father. And then we found a, you know, we used an egg bank for the egg donor. So which was really a whole, I'm working on a one a one person show called Daddy Issues oh. uh, that goes from my daddy issues growing up. Up to like then later on becoming a dad. And I wrote this really funny scene about us being two gay men who the last time either one of us dated women, there was no, there were no <laughs> apps or anything like that. It was like yeah. so long ago. Mm-hmm. And so we were scrolling through a website, just swiping through photos of women to choose the egg donor because that's how those banks work is you look mm-hmm. at photos and if you like the photo, then you click on the link and you can read more about them. You can look at their health history and you can look at things like that. So it was just so funny to me that we were two gay men like swiping left and right <laughs> on a website of photos of women oh to choose gosh. the biological, the DNA for our child. So we did that. And they started the whole process of the transfer. They made the embryos and did the transfer back in February of 2020. And of course, then a month later, the whole world really was shook and we had a baby. So the weekend that everything was like locked down here in LA for the first time was the weekend they messaged and said, hey, it took, the transfer took. And it was like, all right, well. Okay. Hopefully this whole COVID thing is over in like a couple of weeks. Like they right, said it would like be. We all thought it would be. Yeah. So then we were the, you know, parents of a baby that was being cared for by a surrogate in a foreign country during a global pandemic. Uh, and they called us in July, the end of July and said, Hey, by the way, you know, the surrogate's having some health issues. She's having high blood pressure. There was some spotting, some bleeding. So we're going to watch it. And then a week later, they're like, hey, you should probably come. So we went down like the beginning of August of 2020 to to, uh, Mexico where the surrogate lived. And we were there about a week and a week later, she had preeclampsia. So a week later, the Viviana was born and she was almost 29 weeks. So like 28 weeks and five days, she was born. She was like two and a half pounds, super teeny tiny. And so we're living, you know, in an Airbnb next to the hospital, which was attached to the mall, by the way, which is just funny in Cancun. The fancy hospital is uh, the tourist hospital is attached to the shopping mall. And so her very first like set of diapers, like we had to supply everything at the hospital in Mexico. So we had to get like diapers and lotion and everything. And so her very first diaper came from the the Mexican version of Nordstrom, essentially, uh, because it was at the mall. And we were like, where can we go? We don't like... we weren't feeling comfortable taking taxis or Ubers or Lyfts 
to go to like Walmart. And so we're like, where do we go? And we, I don't know why we didn't think of going across the street to the grocery store we'd been using for groceries, but we went to the <laughs> mall and she got Nordstrom diapers. So we were in Mexico for about three weeks with her. And then she was transferred via private neonatal flights, like her private little jet. She and Phil left Cancun and transferred to LA. And then she spent three more weeks in the NICU here. What a story. <laughs> Wild, right? So we just, it's so funny. We just got her. So she had, a, she got a passport back then because we had to get a passport for her, for her to fly into the US. So we got an emergency passport at the consulate in Cancun. That's only good for a year. It's like an emergency passport from the consulate. They're only good for a year. You have to get a new one. But it was funny because they said, oh, you know, you just take the baby and get a photo and bring the baby with you. And I was like, um, the baby's in an incubator oh and the baby God. definitely can't have her photo taken anywhere. So can I just take a photo on my iPhone and print it out? And they were like, oh yeah, that's fine. So her very first passport that we still have, um, the photo was her with like her little breathing tubes in oh the NICU, little, this little tiny baby. Uh, but we just got her new one this week. We just got her updated one and the, the photo is from a couple weeks ago and she's looking great. And so now oh. we're ready to travel again. Oh my gosh. She's just adorable. You know, Thank what you. I, what I always think when I look at pictures of her, it reminds me so to my, my 24 weeker, because I really feel like preemies are born with this innate wisdom and maturity and awareness of the value of life. And they often, I don't know, it's like a wisdom beyond their years. And that's what I see when I look at Viviana. Yeah. You know, what's so funny is someone just said that this week, Phil takes her to like a little parent and me class. So it's like out in a park with a bunch of, you know, a couple other kids and it's run by one of the Waldorf schools here. And they were doing a session and they said like, just like, you know, just watch your child peacefully for, you know, we're just going to do that for a couple moments. And then afterwards, the lady that was teaching was like, yeah, I was observing two children and named one of the other ones. And then Viviana was the other one. And, and, you know, she just seems really wise. So we've actually heard that from quite a few people. So who knows? She's an old soul. Yeah, totally. And, you know, it's interesting because when my son was young, he was probably one or two, we met two different psychics. And I mean, like in social engagements, we didn't go to a psychic, but they, they, both of them said something. I, I can't remember exactly what they said, but something along the lines of, this person is going to inspire people and is going to do something amazing with this life. It's like, oh, wow. It's like, I'll take it. Yeah, exactly. So did you speak Spanish? Yeah, I do. Yeah. Oh, that that probably helped a lot. Oh, my God. Yeah, it did help a lot. It helped a lot in the hospital, for yeah, sure, in the hospital. talking to the doctors and stuff. But like the neonatologist, we, I don't, we really lucked out. The neonatologist that we had, it's a, it's a married couple, and they were the like presidents of the like America's Association of Neonatologists for several years. Oh, good. So they were just like the best of the best, really. Like, did, better care than we would have gotten in the US, honestly. Really? And how did it feel as a gay couple in Mexico? I mean, did they treat you just the same as everybody else? Yeah, it was pretty, pretty easy breezy there. I good. think that the, you know, the agency that we worked with, and so thus the hospital where the baby was born, mm -hmm. I think they tend to work with gay couples. So mm. I think that that system was used to it. But yeah, we didn't really have any, I didn't really feel at all awkward. And I mean, it was Cancun and Cancun is pretty like, you know, it's such a, a global travel destination. So outside of the hospital, everywhere you went, I mean, it wasn't, we weren't a novelty to anybody. How did the NICU differ between Mexico and the US? So in Mexico, Different? she was the only baby in the NICU. So oh my gosh, she kind of had like a private nurse. <laughs> wow. Um, the one here was busy. It was full of babies. They were moving all the time. It definitely felt more chaotic. There 
just, I mean, I, I always hate saying this because I don't want to like feed into any stereotypes about like the healthcare system. So we had like the best doctors and she had like private nurse essentially because there were no other babies in there. But like the facilities definitely weren't as nice as mm-hmm. the as the US. But you felt like you got excellent care. That's great. It was really great. I mean, we also did this during COVID. So like only one of us oh. at a time could be with her. Oh man. Um, so we that didn't been so hard. The yeah, the three of us were not together in the same room until the day that I brought her home from oh, the hospital. We had n- all three never been together. So the first photo that we took at our house when we brought her, when I brought her home, was the very first time the three of us had ever been in a room together. So even in the U.S., you couldn't both be in the hospital with her. No, only one at oh, a time. Wow, that must have been so hard. So we would do shifts. You know, we'd each go in there for hours and hours and hours. But, but yeah, we we both couldn't be in there at the same. Even now, like she had a really high fever recently, and so we went to the ER because it was late at night, and you know, new parents. Even now, we, only one of us could go into the ER oh. with her. That's so hard when you can't support each other because I I feel like a NICU stay really can make or break a relationship, you know? And in our case, I felt like it really strengthened our relationship, but I can't imagine going through that alone. I mean, I know that there are single parents out there who deal with this as well, but I can't imagine going through that alone. Wow. A close family friend, she's an author of multiple books. She's an RN, parenting books and such. And she was saying like the like parental stress, like essentially that like, She's like, you guys are probably both going through PTSD right now while trying to do this and being like alone in the room. She's like, that's a lot. It is a (laughs) lot. lot. I mean, really at the time we're just trying to get through. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's so much to be a NICU parent, no matter what anyway. Right. Yeah. And then to do it on your own and that's, and then during COVID. Yeah. That you had quite a lot piled on you. So how is she doing now? Tell us. She's great. She's rocking and thriving and. You know, it's it's like that story that I've heard about so many so many little preemies, including your your little guy. You know, she's just thriving, and you never know, and she's loving life. Awesome. Did she have a hard adjustment when you brought her home? No, I mean she was still so small because you know that's you know it's all corporate medicine these days. So it was like, how quickly could she get out of there? Right. So she was like four and a half pounds when I brought her home. She was mm-hmm. still like a month before her due date. So. Mm-hmm. We brought her home like four or five weeks before her actual due date, which is today, by the way. Her oh, original today? due date was today. Oh, yeah. wow. Yeah. So it's like, a, I don't know, we're celebrating it as the second birthday, I think. Yeah. So we brought her home like a little over a month earlier than that even. So she was still like four and a half pounds. She was so tiny. She was pretty awesome. easy. Yeah. You know, because I remember hearing that a lot of preemies, especially early preemies, are really fussy when they get home and they have a really hard time. But ours was really, he was a high tech baby. He came home on oxygen and he was hooked to a laptop because he was on a medical, he was on a medical study. They were trying to determine whether giving extra oxygen would arrest ROP, retinopathy of prematurity. Yep. And so he was hooked to a laptop and an apnea monitor and oxygen. So for the first month, you know, he was hooked up all the time, except for when we took him on walks with a little oxygen monitor. So uh, yep. an oxygen tank, but he, he was always really like a little Buddha baby. He was really calm and you know, peaceful. And so I think we lucked out, Mike. <laughs> I, I think so. You know, it's, it's certainly nothing I did, you know? Well, I'm sure that being phenomenal parents has a lot to do with it as well. So, yeah. Oh, you know, I think everyone tries. Everyone tries. I've had beloved nurses would say to us, like, you know, he survived because you were there every day and you were believed him. And I thought, oh, no, that's bullshit because I know a lot of people whose children died 
And, you know, it has a lot to do with luck. And yes, we were there for him. And I do want to believe our faith in him and our hope helped things, but I think it's really probably bullshit. So many people really believed and and prayed so hard over their babies and they didn't make it. So yeah, yeah, I agree. Well, I'm so glad. Congratulations. And uh, are you thinking about having more? Or are you done? I am good. You're good. Yeah. <laughs> Phil, Phil is like the, oh, let's do another. Let's, let's, let's continue. And I'm good. So we'll yeah. see. Yeah. Well, and having gone through this with your first child, <laughs> it's like we, it took us a while before we decided to have any more. You know, you just don't know what with developmental issues too. And so, yeah, you'll know if the need strikes you to have another. You'll know. (laughs) Yes. Yeah. So let's talk a little bit about your career journey and how you have found your fertile ground in your life career. Oh my gosh. How have (laughs) I? How have I? You've done a lot of things. I went on your LinkedIn and you've you've been involved in a lot of companies and yeah, you've done a lot of really interesting things in your life. It's interesting, actually. This kind of goes full circle back to the the beginning of our conversation around diabetes. Mm -hmm. So early on, I I ended up leaving college. I, I left college and was like, you know, kind of finding myself a little bit and ended up living in Chicago. I got a job as a flight attendant and I ended up being in Chicago. That's where I got based. And so I was auditioning and I was taking classes and acting classes and doing commercials and working as a flight attendant at the same time. And 9-11 happened and then I got furloughed. And so I didn't have that job. And I was like, okay, well, I got to get a job to pay the bills. And I thought maybe I'll go back to like waiting tables and or bartending and I can audition more on the side, but I had to have a job with insurance because of the diabetes. So I got a job as like a manager at like a sandwich shop and liked it and was successful there. So I continued auditioning, acting, doing shows on the side, but I couldn't do that full-time. I couldn't go full-time into acting because I had this very expensive insulin habit. And so I started working in this little sandwich shop, potbelly sandwich shop. And so I started working there when they had just seven locations. I ended up staying for seven years and becoming the director of new store opening training, heading up a bunch of teams, growing the corporate Potbelly University. And I left, they had like 200 locations or so. So I had been there for a really long time, was much more successful at that than I was at the acting because I couldn't put my full self into it because I needed health insurance. This is long before the Affordable Care Act here in the United States. So that led me to this really successful career um, on the restaurant side of things. I, I went on to become a sommelier and a wine educator, oh uh, then gosh. eventually a director of operations, <laughs> then the head of HR, then was a partner in a restaurant group. And we sold that to a private equity firm. And I decided to just leave, take the take the cash and leave. And so that's when I moved from Chicago, my husband and I, to LA. And we had the money and Affordable Care Act had just happened. So we had the money and the ability to to have health insurance to chase some of the other things we were interested in. So that's when I started doing some more work. I started working on like TV interests and started consulting and then consulting led to leading workshops, which led to speaking and then speaking. I initially was speaking at a lot of like retail, restaurant, hospitality, hotel, spa, industry events and and clients talking about building a great brand and, and that kind of thing. And one of the clients there, reached out to me and said, Hey, we want to have you back next year for our event, you know, in the next few months or whatever. And I said, Oh, cool. Yeah. You guys probably have a lot of turnover because that industry is so much turnover. So it's going to be new people. You know, let's talk. It's like, no, we don't want you to speak. And I thought, 
okay, well, you're not the first people to tell me that you'll pay me to shut up. I've heard that before. <laughs> you know, once an actor, always an actor, mm-hmm. right? And so she said, what we want you to do, last year you spoke and all of our people remembered the message and it was so meaningful. They were talking about your ideas and about how to bring their stories to life in their company culture. And we need them to feel that way about the things our executives are presenting because they don't remember anything they're presenting and they need this information. So what we want you to do is to coach our executive team and help them put their speeches together. And so that's how I started. I did that and I was like, this is it. This is wow. this was finally the fertile ground where I was like, oh, this is what I'm supposed to be doing is helping people with really great ideas make sure those ideas find their own fertile ground. And that's going to be through the power of storytelling and being able to communicate your ideas from a stage or a screen. Wow, what a great story. You have done even things that are not on your LinkedIn profile, right? Oh, I'm sure a million things, right? Yes, like being an actor. and That's so cool. Are you still acting too? No, not really. I do a lot of writing. And so like I said, I'm writing that, putting together that one man show, uh, the daddy issues thing. I mean, I really focus all of my work into the work I do with my my speaking clients and my storytelling clients. Do you miss anything about the corporate world? You know, it's such a different thing. I was working with a new client recently and she was talking about the work she does around burnout and you know so much of the idea of burnout right now or or healing or creativity is kind of encouraging people to quit their job and go do mm-hmm. their own thing mm-hmm. and she was saying that like her take is do this work so that no matter where you're working you're fulfilled and happy because and we were talking about it most people should not be entrepreneurs it's right <laughs> tough. It is mentally challenging. It is going to bring up every trauma you've ever experienced in your life. It's hard. Mm -hmm. And so I think sometimes the thing I miss about corporate world, and I was never super corporate. Like I never worked at like IBM or something. I worked in fun corporate places. Typically I was working in restaurants and hotels and things like that. Sometimes it is lonely where you're like, okay, I have to sit down and like I have to think of like, you know, and I have help here and there, but I don't have someone to sit down and be like, let's talk about like content strategy and like interesting blog articles. So it's a lot of alone time that I wasn't used to spending. So the time where I'm teaching or I'm coaching or I'm leading a session or teaching a masterclass, that is all in my wheelhouse and Mm -hmm. I love it. Mm -hmm. The rest of the times it can be a little bit lonely to be like, I'm sitting here today thinking of next quarter's blog posts. Mm -hmm. So do miss that. Yeah. You know, I was telling a friend the other day who's who, who works for a major global corporation and is thinking about possibly becoming a consultant. And I suggested to her the other day, like, you know, if you have somebody who also is interested in leaving and doing doing their own thing, partner up with them. Because I feel like that as well. I mean, I think you and I are both probably extroverts. <laughs> so, so it is, it can be a little bit lonely at times not to have people to bounce ideas off of. Yeah. So you wrote a book called Company Culture for Dummies. I'm just curious. <laughs> I'm curious to, because when you see that somebody's written that type of book, I've done a lot of writing around toxic workplace environments. I've had a lot of really positive workplace experiences as well as toxic ones. I was just curious what caused you to write that book. Was it that you had seen good and bad? Yes, I have seen both from all angles, from many, especially so many of the restaurant places I was in over the years were startups. There's a lot of unhealthy male entrepreneurs out there who create pretty toxic places and the, and the restaurant industry can, can be that way. It's 
we're seeing a lot of this, the stories of the misogyny and the the things that happen, the power play there. But for me, I mean, on, if I'm being honest, the book deal came because somebody reached out to somebody else to write a book from the Dummy series because it's Wiley is the publisher. They're the mm-hmm. big publisher, Wiley. They do a lot of business books. They had reached out to someone else that I was doing work with here and there and asked him to do a book. And he's like, I'm not really interested in that book, but maybe you should reach out to Mike. He's He would be great for a topic. And so she came to me, the editor, the acquisitions editor from Wiley came to me with a different For Dummies book. Mm-hmm. And I said, uh, at the time I was mostly teaching company culture storytelling, like storytelling for leadership in organizations. And so I said, well, I know that my job is going to be to sell the book and it's going to be easier for me to sell the book if it's a topic that I talk about because I can bundle it with gigs. Ah. So the thing she wanted me to write a book about, I was like, I don't think I couldn't sell that as much. Now I could, if she came back to me now, I could sell the heck out of that book. But at the time I was like, ah, you know, and so I looked at quickly, I was like, how do I do something with this? It's an evergreen book. This book is going to be on shelves in 20 years. So mm-hmm. I thought, oh, I want to write a book for them. Let me look. So I looked up and I was like, wait, they don't have a company culture book in the dummy <laughs> series. They got like everything. So I quickly said, hey, y'all should have a company culture book. I see you don't. Um, here's, you know, the amount of Google searches, YouTube videos, like you should have a book on this and I'm the person to write it. So if you're interested, let me know. She said, yeah, let's do it. Write the book. And I didn't have to write a proposal. I didn't have to send a writing sample. Wow. She just said, sure. Yeah. Write the book. And six months later, we put it out. How cool is that? Pretty cool. So what would you advise other people who want to find their fertile ground in their career path? One of the things I think is really interesting is for me, I kept getting promoted because I was good at something and I got to do the next thing after it. And I remember feeling many times that I was no longer doing the thing I liked to do <laughs> because, you know, I was I was a trainer and I loved teaching way back in my early days at Poppily Sandwich Shop. I loved teaching. I loved having workshops and I loved getting people together and I loved those experiences of, of teaching that way. And I got promoted to then be the manager of the other trainers and then the director of the other managers of the trainers. And I remember somewhere along the way, like pretty far along the way, being like, I don't actually do any of the stuff I loved doing before. And I think it's really natural when we're in those environments, even as an entrepreneur, to say, oh, I'm good at this thing and now I'm going to build a whole business and have a team under me. And then you wake up and you're like, I don't actually do the thing I love to do anymore. And so I think that my advice always is to try to figure out What is the thing that you do love to do? What was the thing that you're loving doing in your business? And how can you create a business where you get to do that more? You know, I've gone through this a little bit, even on the, on the public speaking and storytelling coaching side, because I don't love doing one-on-one coaching as much. And then I found that, oh, I was really successful. And I had all these one-on-one coaching clients, high-end public speakers. And I was like, oh, I don't love this. I want to figure out how to teach masterclasses and do group teaching. And I don't necessarily want to have like a bunch of courses where I don't ever interact with them. I love teaching. I love helping someone, having someone in front of me and helping them reach the next level of their self-expression and having them have witnesses to that from people in the audience of that session. And I think that we just tend to get promoted and promote ourselves to the next job because it seems like the next logical rung on the ladder. And often we don't stop and ask ourselves, is this really what I love to do? And I think if we do stop and ask ourselves that, we can usually find a way to reorganize our jobs or reorganize our businesses to do the thing that we are geniusly. I don't believe in this like, 
you know, there's the hero's journey and we're supposed to do something heroic. And then we look at it and we say, well, I'm not heroic. I don't have a hero's journey. What I really believe in is the genius myth. We all are genius. We all have genius inside of us that we are uniquely here to express and share. And when we can figure what that is, that's the thing we should double down on. I love it. Great advice. And I think that with entrepreneurs like me, who are multi-passionate, to use a a famous person's adjective, it's hard for us to really narrow down to what we really love to do. I feel like when I started my business, I was like, I can do this, I can do that. I mean, I have 30 years experience in the corporate world. So I've done a lot of different things. And I'm at a place in my career where I need to really narrow my focus and say, this is what I love best. Kind of like what you did with, you know, I love to teach masterclasses webinars. So really helpful. Tell listeners about your podcast. Oh, my show is called The Mic Drop Moment. You know, we talk about public speaking. We talk about self-expression. I don't really do a lot of like the public speaking, like here are the five ways you should (laughs) hold your hands to deliver a message and be persuasive. I really believe the most dynamic can't take your eyes off them public speakers who become people's irrational favorites to borrow a, a idea from my friend Jay Akunzo, that it's the ones who are the most self-expressed, the ones who are sharing the stories that help make sense of the things we're experiencing. And so that's what the show's about, the mic drop moment. Some episodes are just me and some are with really cool guests. Love it. I look forward to catching up on those. And I love that name. That is just brilliant. <laughs> it's fun, right? Yes. <laughs> yes, it's wonderful. My husband's name is Mike. I'm going to be telling him about your podcast. Oh, I love it. <laughs> he can start using that term. And we didn't we didn't even really go far. My group program that people join and we go through is called the Mike Drop Method. So I, oh, I'm right. not that original. I keep it no, pretty easy. I love it. So my final question is, is there a story of grit and resilience and finding one's fertile ground that has been an inspiration? for you in your life? There's so many. I find such inspiration in so many people's work and their creative expression. You know, people like my friend Ash Amberger, who runs the Middle Finger Project and wrote a fabulous book called The Middle Finger Project. I've read that. Oh, she's great. She's one of my dear friends and Mm -hmm. she's just fabulous. My friend Erin King, who wrote You're Kind of a Big Deal. Same thing with her. There's so many examples like that for me. But I think if I were to, to pick one right now, I would say it is my mom. You know, we went and lived with my grandparents, like I said, and my mom stayed behind with the man she was married to at the time who was just emotionally, mentally, physically abusive and tore down, ate up her self-esteem and her self-worth. And at some point she finally, with nothing to her name, no money, nothing, a truck that was like broken down, finally drove herself from Iowa to California where my grandmother was with nothing because she thought there's got to be more than this and you know slept in between trucks on the at the mm. truck stop to try to be safe on the way here and just restarted her life because she knew there had to be more than that and she's still climbing her way towards that and still chasing that idea for herself. And that is fertile ground to me. I remember seeing the pictures when she came to meet Viviana for the first time. Yeah, that was really special. Oh my gosh. What's her name? Melinda. Melinda. Shout out to Melinda. (laughs) Shout out to Melinda. Shout out to Melinda. Love you, mom. Have you been watching or reading that story made? 
Yeah, we've talked quite oh. a bit about that together. Yeah. yeah, I read the book, kind of similar story. Very inspiring. Well, this has just been such a pleasure, Mike. It's been great to get to know you. And I've really enjoyed our conversation. Yeah, me too. This was really uh, great of you. Thank you for sharing your audience with me today. Yes, my pleasure. And if you ever want to collaborate on something storytelling, writing wise, just hit me up because maybe we can find an opportunity to collaborate and not be lonely entrepreneurs together. Ooh, I think we can. <laughs> I, I think know. we can. Great. Thank you so much, Mike. And all the best to you and Phil and Viviana. Thank you. I loved hearing Mike's life story, and I hope you did too. You can see photos and learn more about Mike at www.fertilegroundcommunications.com. Look for the Finding Fertile Ground podcast tab. If you're inspired by this episode or any others, or have an idea for a guest or topic I should cover, drop me a line at marie at fertilegroundcommunications.com. I love to hear from listeners. Thanks for listening to the Finding Fertile Ground podcast. If you liked today's episode, please subscribe and leave a review.